Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, I will look at former President Trump's first day in court for his fraud trial. I will also talk about some of the previous fraud cases that were brought in New York City. Governor Newsom appoints a progressive to take Dianne Feinstein's Senate, shock, uh, her Senate seat, rather, and a judge allows a defamation suit against the Southern Poverty Law Center to proceed. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. to everybody who is watching live this morning on Facebook. Thanks for joining us. And if you're listening to the podcast later in the day, whatever time it is, I hope you're having a great day and I hope you're enjoying, you're going to enjoy the podcast today. We've got uh, several things to talk about. It's going to be an abbreviated version of the podcast today and the live version. Uh, we're only going to be about half cranked today because uh, I'm going to have to hit the door at um, right after eight o'clock this morning, simply because I have to, uh, I'm participating in the Greer Chamber of Commerce Leadership Greer Training. Um, I'm part of the Leadership Greer Committee with the chamber, and they've got an event today that I, I volunteered for. We're all supposed to take a day to go out with those who are in the Leadership Greer uh, program to tour around, look at different sites in Greer. Um, and to just be part of the program, kind of help out. So I have to be somewhere in Greer at 8.30 this morning. And so because of that, we're going to have kind of an, an abbreviated show today. So I'm going to get right into it. Yesterday, Donald Trump appeared in a New York courtroom setting the stage for what some are saying could be a lengthy fraud trial. I don't know what would draw it out, but opening statements were made yesterday by the prosecution and by President Trump's defense attorneys. Throughout the day, state prosecutors laid out their case, in fact, accusing the president of lying year after year, defrauding clients, banks, and business partners. Keep in mind, none of those banks or clients or business partners feel that they've been defrauded. So we actually have a fraud case with no victims. And that's something that's going to be taken up on appeal because it, it's highly irregular that you bring a fraud charge against somebody when no one has been defrauded, or at least they don't believe they've been defrauded. Everybody made money. The state of New York made money. The city of New York made money. Lots of taxes were paid. Now, that doesn't make it right. I mean, I get it. You know, this is truth in politics and culture, biblical worldview, and it, it doesn't take it, even if other parties agree to something that's illegal and they don't mind if they make money off of it, certainly that doesn't lessen the fact that the act itself was either legal or illegal. I mean, we deal with truth here, not somebody's version of the truth. But here's why this matters. It matters because, in, in just a little bit, I'm going to go through a number of the cases, not, not all of them, because it's, it's like 24 pages. But I found a website that has a record of all the fraud cases that have been brought in the state of New York in the past, I think it's like the past 10 years, something like that. It goes back a while. And 
and, and you're going to see some discrepancies, some things in those fraud cases that this fraud case does not have. And, and then you're going to see something that this fraud case has that none of those fraud cases have. And so there are discrepancies. So the question becomes, why is this being brought? It's, you know, if it is this really a violation of the law if the law has never been interpreted in previous fraud cases to include over-evaluation of property? I mean, I think that's a legitimate question, and I think that's probably going to be a question for appeal. It didn't slow down Attorney General Letitia James, but then again, um, she's made it very clear that part of her purpose in being elected Attorney General was to go after Donald Trump. I've got, uh, I'm going to play a soundbite of that here in just a little bit, um, of her making that statement back in 2016, uh, 2018, excuse me. So the, this, you know, the, the, the questions are not, yes, the question is, did someone or lie or misrepresent their businesses? And then the question becomes, is over-evaluation of property a matter of opinion? Could you get the value of the property to the level that Trump got his property valued if you ask enough people? I mean, is it because this is not an accurate science. The, the idea of, of value in property is not accurate, uh, is, is not something that everybody does in the same manner, I guess I should say. And according to uh, Letitia James and according to Judge Ingeron, that the way that Trump went about it makes it fraudulent, even though there are no victims. So now it becomes not just a question of the law, what the law says, and whether the law has technically been broken, it becomes a question of justice. Yes, we need to know if the law has been broken, but if, if it has been and there are no victims, and if, if this case is being prosecuted because the guy who is charged with all of this, his name is Donald Trump, and there's retribution here. There's, there's going after somebody because he dared won the presidency of the United States over Hillary Clinton, that he dared to put forth conservative principles in the White House. I mean, and so many other things. I mean, that there, anybody who doubts that there's just pure hatred out there for Donald Trump uh, hasn't been paying attention. And hatred, anger, envy, jealousy, um, all of those things are poor reasons to go after a person. You, you may not like the person. You may think that the person is, is, is a terrible leader, but it doesn't give you carte blanche to take the legal system and twist it in an unjust way to go after that person to hurt them. And, and that's the question that's on the table. And we have to look at all these cases. Again, as Christians, let's be objective. Let's look at the evidence. Let's not just hear what other people say about it, but let's look for ourselves before we start going out and blowing up social media with a lot of things that may or not be may may or may not be accurate. Um, what, what truth in politics and culture? I know I keep going back to that today, but I, it's just so important that those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ lead with the truth. It's also very important that we uphold justice. And so getting to the truth in these matters is going to help us to know how to uphold justice. Because 
let me be frank. If President Trump obstructed justice with the documents case in Florida, then the truth is he should be held accountable for that, regardless of who he is or what we think about him or what the world thinks about him. The question is not public opinion. The question is, did the former president of the United States knowingly take those documents, defy the law, and did he obstruct the investigation into whether he had the documents? Did he lie when he was asked if he had them? I, I, I think that's a much bigger question in the documents case than the fact that he had the documents to begin with. I think if he had turned them back in, this thing would have been over. You know, this, the, the, the case is still going against President Biden. Uh, th there's not much being said about it, but there are inquiries out. The investigation is proceeding, and we don't know how that's going to end up. And again, we know how Hillary Clinton's case ended up. And, and people would say that it isn't just that Hillary Clinton went scot-free and it was simply berated for being... Um, from mishandling information without the intent of letting it get out, top secret information. So, you know, people are saying, well, this is the same thing that happened with President Trump. It, it is, in a way, but then there comes, and of course, the question for Hillary Clinton, did she obstruct justice? And I think there's evidence that she did, and she was allowed to skate but President Trump is being held to a higher standard. That's where people have a problem when it comes to the justice part of this. So we need to ask both of those questions. What's true here and what is just? And those two things are related as we go forward. We need to remember that. Um, so when it was Trump's lawyer's turn, they defended the president's business practices. They called them legitimate they asserted that, that, if anything, his property values were undervalued. Now, that would be true at the end of the day. In other words, President Trump's property values did rise as a result of him being able to get the bank loans, being able to make the partnerships, having the clients that he had, um, his partnership, all of that, all of the value of these properties rose to a much higher level. And, and so that's the claim. You know, but the question is not how much were the properties valued when all of this came to a head, but how much were the properties valued when the former President Trump was presenting those properties to banks as um, uh, collateral and to business partners and, and, to, and to potential in investors. That, that's the, what, what were the properties valued at that time? For the first time, we've got cameras in a courtroom with Trump, and we've got video showing the president flanked by his lawyers. He looked pretty serious. Um, he looked pretty mad. I, I think I would, I would look that way if I was in court for this reason. Attorney General Letitia James was, some people said, sneering at him. I went back and looked at the video, and yeah, I, I would have to agree that the way that she was looking at him was kind of a sneer. She had this sort of, um, I, would, I would call it a self-satisfied look and a look of disgust looking at him, setting, see, she was sitting, uh, let's see if I can turn myself around, right over just behind his right shoulder, he and his, and his attorneys. 
So Engeron offered the camera this big grin, and he laughed in the direction of the state prosecutors. And people are making a big deal about this. Let me just say that if you're the judge in the case, it's probably better if you keep your big grin and your chuckle to yourself. But I don't think it had anything to do with President Trump. I think what he was laughing about and what he was grinning, he looked at the camera. They were discussing the cameras in the courtroom and why they were in the courtroom. And in fact, Trump's attorney was making the point that that Trump wanted the cameras in the courtroom. He wanted people to see what was going on in there because he believed that he's being tried unjustly. And for people to see that would be to his benefit. And so while that discussion was going on about the cameras, the judge looked at the camera and kind of grinned and looked over at the prosecutors and kind of shrugged his shoulders and smiled. I, I think it was more about the cameras in the courtroom than it was about Trump. But just a good rule of thumb, if you're a judge in a high-profile case, you know, I, I, it would be a good idea to not make those kind of gestures because of how they can be, be interpreted. You've got to know that if you're in a courtroom with Donald Trump and all of this publicity and all of this uh, attention is being paid, that every move that you make is going to go under a microscope. And it would be better for you to keep the grin and your chuckles to yourself. So what's at stake here? Well, if Trump's found guilty, he could be forced out of business in New York. We've talked about that. Uh, a lot of high-profile properties could be put in receivership, which means that President Trump wouldn't be able to decide what happens to them. The state could sell off the property uh, properties. Now, any profit would have to go to the president uh, because it, it you, you can't just take the properties and then take the profit. You can seize the properties. You can sell the properties. The judge has wide latitude under New York law to do those kind of things, but you can't take the money and just give it to whoever you want. Now, if he's fined $250 million, which is what Letitia James wants, that $250 million can come off of the top of whatever the properties bring. So Trump accused Letitia James of having a personal agenda against him. And I, I mean, I think there's some a, a good bit of evidence to back that up. But this is what Trump let me let me get up get the uh, soundbite here. This is what Trump said outside the courthouse yesterday. Disgraceful trial put forward by an attorney general who's corrupt. We have murders going all over the city, all over the state at a record level. It's an epidemic, and they waste their time with this. Okay, so uh, uh, part of Trump's argument here, of course, is that there's too much time being spent on the, a trial for him that doesn't even have the kind of evidence that you would expect to find in a trial like this when you're talking about fraud. And yet you've got murders in New York. He's pointing to the fact that crime is out of control. And at the, the underneath that argument is, in order for the attorney general, in order for this judge to be involved in this, it has to mean that they've got a personal vendetta against him. And that's a big part of his defense. Problem is, this is not a jury trial. The judge is going to decide this. So I'm not sure that the President Trump's attacks, it may play well in the, in the media. It may play well in middle America. I mean, it may play well across the country. It may demonstrate to potential voters in the Republican primary and even in the general election that he's being mistreated by the justice system. But 
He's talking about the guy when he runs down the judge. He's talking about the guy who's going to decide his fate, is going to be listening to the evidence. And people are human. Now, the judge should let that just go right over his head. And if you ask him, of course, he's going to say that it went right over his head, that there was, there was, you know, no, 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 don't worry. I'm not going to be biased because of anything that Trump says. But if he's human, it's going to be difficult for him, for him not to be impacted by this. And so that's, I'm, I'm sure Trump's lawyers would like it very much and that there's nothing they can do about it. But I think they would like it if the president said less rather than more, at least while the trial is going on. All right. What about what about Letitia James? I mean, it, it, can anybody doubt her motivation? And I think this is going to go against uh, against her and against these charges once this makes it to the appellate division. I I don't have any confidence that Judge Judge Ingeron, um is going to rule in Trump's favor. I mean, I just. It, making that sweeping ruling um, last week about Trump's properties before even all the evidence was heard, saying that there's enough evidence of fraud for the judge to say that it, he's going to allow Trump's properties to be seized by the by the state that that it's going to be uh, that he can put those properties into receivership. I mean, after that, does anybody really think? And that, that's why this is so unusual for a judge to make that kind of statement and then know that they're going to sit there this week and listen to evidence to the contrary. And then there's no question about Letitia James' motive. Uh, this is a recording from 2018 while she was running for office. This comes from Morning Wire this morning. You know, the best thing would be if she would have reversed that, if she had just gone home rather than going to the office every day and going after President Trump. This was while she was running for election. She called him an illegitimate president. She vowed to go after him, to sue him. This is an attorney general candidate. You, the, the law is supposed to be equally applied to everybody, and it's never to be used as a club in the hands of a political opponent. This is someone who is almost hysterical. I mean, you could hear the tone of her voice. She was, she worked herself up into a frenzy talking about that she can't wait for the opportunity. Vote me in office. If you hate Trump as much as I do, then you need to put me in office because I'm going to go after him. Retribution, vindictiveness, vitriol, all of those things by a person who has a powerful position. I remember an episode of Law & Order where Jack McCoy was talking to the jury and it was a case about whether or not someone could be convicted of a crime if they used intimidation as, as, as the method of the crime. And I remember him talking, looking at the jury and just walking over there and say, um, I'm going to take your house. I'm going to lock you up. I'm the attorney general. I can do it. I'm going to charge you with so-and-so. I'm the attorney general. I can do whatever I want to do. And I just remember thinking, I mean, it's a TV show, okay? But it was a powerful example. It was a, it was a truth that was being put forward that the attorney general in a particular state or the federal attorney general, which we're seeing now with Merrick Garland and a lot of the abuses that we see in the Justice Department, we're, they, they have a lot of power. And for them to brag 
that they're going to target an individual, someone who is president of the United States, who thinks that that person is illegitimate. Does anybody think that Letitia James looked at this evidence without passion or prejudice? I mean, of course not. She telegraphed. She sent a message to the world. She asked people to vote for her for this reason. And this that ought to be enough to disqualify this case, quite frankly. She should never be allowed, in my view, to bring charges against someone that she so targeted before she ran for office, before she saw a scrap of evidence. I mean, in terms of looking at it from an objective standpoint to determine whether charges should be brought. So at the end of the day, yesterday, the judge seemed to rule in Trump's favor concerning concerning the statute of limitations. Now, there's going to be a lot of analysis of this going on today and not being an attorney myself. Um, I don't want to go too far out on a limb here and, until I can read some of these the analysis of this. But if, if everybody so far is interpreting the judge's ruling correctly, it means that anything Trump did before 2014 will have to be off the table for the trial. That means about 80% of Trump's holdings are going to be in the clear because only about 20% would have been added, would have come under any kind of scrutiny. Um, and of course, so this is going to, this, that's going to be a big deal. I mean, if, if 80% of this is, is gone, then Trump has a much better chance of, of surviving all of this. Um, now, is there any question going into court is, is there any question that this is helping him with Republican primary voters? No. I mean, his poll numbers are skyrocketing after the second debate. I mean, the Republican Party, you know, he asked the Republican Party to cancel the debates. The candidates might want to ask the Republican Party to cancel the debates because every time they debate, Trump's poll numbers go up. For, if, if somebody's going to try to break through, we talked about after the debate, they're, they're trying to break through the shield, the force field that's around Trump, and they haven't found the formula, and they're not finding it yet because it, th this is causing people to rally around him because they're angry at the way he's being treated. Now, is that a reason to elect someone president? Um, I don't think it's the best idea. I mean, I think a person should be elected president based on who they are, what they're likely to do, um, and yes, Trump did good things while he was president. So that that that's a part of it. But another big part of this is a sympathy vote. I mean, it's just why are you picking on this guy? We're sick and tired of it. We're going to put him back in office just to be able to push back against those who are coming against him constantly. And President Trump has done a good job of associating with the type of persecution that he's receiving to his supporters and saying, you know, it's not just me they hate, it's you. And that's motivating a lot of people right now. But here's, here's a problem that's going to come up in the general election. The time that all of this is taking him away from the campaign trail and the money from donors that could be funding his campaign is starting to take a toll. According to Open Secrets, President Trump has spent over $130 million of his campaign money and his own money on legal defense since he, he launched his reelection bid. Think about that, $130 million just for attorney fees. And 
everything associated with being in court. Now, this these are going to be ongoing. I mean, it's not like this $130 million is the cap, and going forward, there's not going to be any more. No, it's going to continue to pile up because the president's going to continue to have to present his case in court. All right. That could that could have a, an impact on on the general election. You may say, well, what what do you what what does it matter? He doesn't need to spend the money on the primaries because he's leading by so much that it it's it's almost over in a lot of people's minds. Although it's incredibly early, and there's a lot of things that can happen between now, even in the first Iowa caucus. But if things keep going the way they are, and and the and progressives keep thinking that bringing Trump into court is going to devalue his position unless they want him to to his position to be improved with voters in the Republican primary because they believe that because Biden beat him one time, he can beat him again, and that there's enough people out there in the general election that dislike Trump viscerally that are, are going to do whatever it takes to show up and vote against him. Uh, that And that's a lot of the political theory that's out there. Now, I don't, look, don't don't, don't ask me to say at this point one way or the other. I'm just telling you what a lot of people are saying. Um, there are some who say that the worst nightmare for Democrats is to have Trump running against Biden. Some say the worst nightmare for Republicans and the best deal for Democrats is to have Trump because if you look at the general electorate, uh, his popularity is, is, is in the tank. But then you have polls that show him leading President Biden at this point. If you throw out the ABC News poll, uh, that which had him up 10 points almost, not over nine points ahead of Biden, then all the rest of the polls show either a dead heat, Biden up one or two, or Trump up one or two. And so it's basically a dead heat. And the question is, once the general population gets into this and they get to weigh in, What's going to happen then? What's going to be, uh, how are they going to vote? All right, let's talk a little bit about LaFonza Butler. Um, of course, uh, Diane Feinstein passed away. She's, I think, 92 years old. Um, she was longtime senator from California. And Governor Newsom is kind of painted himself into a corner, much the same way that President Biden did, because President Biden vowed that he was going to have an African-American woman to be his running mate. And so he ended up with Kamala Harris, and that has not worked out real well for him. And, and now you've got the same situation. Governor Newsom promised, because he nominated a Latino man at, at, uh, for, to take Kamala Harris's place for the Senate, and she was an African-American woman, he promised the next time he got an opportunity, he would make sure that it was an African-American woman. So Butler is a black woman uh, who's the first openly gay person to serve in the U.S. Senate once she's appointed. Uh, she's a hyper-progressive. She's president of the pro-abortion activist group Emily's List. And the group, I mean, they raise a lot of money. They spend a lot of money. In fact, they spent in, in the 2022 election cycle to make sure that candidates would get elected who would be radical in their approach to abortion, making sure that babies are dying in the womb. Emily's List spent $68 million during that election cycle. And that money went to pro-abortion candidates that support pro-abortion amendments and law changes in several states. 
but it, it's wide open abortion. It's abortion on demand up until the moment of birth. That's what Emily's List believes, and that's what they ask their candidates to support if they're going to get money. Butler is the former leader of the Service Employees International Union. She served as a senior advisor to Kamala Harris's failed 2020 presidential campaign. Newsom named her without any limitations on her ability to run for the seat in 2024. Now, Barbara Lee was thought to be the shoe-in, and the Black Caucus urged Newsom to select Barbara Lee, but according to some reports, Newsom chose someone not currently running so as not to put and give an advantage to someone already in the race. But let me ask you a question. All right, if that's the real motivation, why did Newsom say, I'm going to put Butler into this role without any limitations, without any conditions? In other words, if, if she wants to run for re-election, she can. A lot of people thought that Newsom would appoint a caretaker, somebody that would simply sit in that Senate seat until the election takes place and somebody could be elected. But now Newsom has given her an incredible advantage. It, to me, it is hypocritical for him to say, I'm not going to get involved in the race when what he did ultimately was get involved in the race by giving someone who will be an incumbent an incredible advantage going into 2024. Um, that she's immediately, in fact, going to be in a strong position over her opponents. Another factor, factor in Newsom's decision could be that Barbara Lee is third of those who are running serious candidates running for Feinstein, Feinstein's seat. She's far behind Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, who are also trying to get the seat. But, but still, the overall idea that Newsom would appoint somebody and stay out of the race went out the window when he appointed Butler with no provisions. Because as an incumbent, that's going to give her an advantage. So what about Butler's positions? Well, as I said, Emily's List supports candidates who support and demand that all their candidates that receive money have abortion on demand until birth as one of their, um, their, their commitments. Uh, she's all in, of course, for the LGBTQIA issues. Uh, she's led Emily's list to go beyond support for abortion to also support what she calls and what a lot of people are calling now climate justice, equity, the fielding of more diverse candidates, and the broadening of voter options. So Emily's List is involved in all of those progressive causes. Now, the catch here that Californians evidently don't care about, either they don't know or they don't care, is that Butler lives in Silver Springs, Maryland. You know, we said yesterday, Emily's, Emily's List spent the weekend erasing references to Butler's residence off of their website but there's no way to get around it. She lives in Silver Springs, Maryland, not California. Newsom downplayed her residency. Basically, this is what he said. He said she'll register to vote in California before she's sworn in. End of story. No worries. And you know what? If the people of California want to put up with that, then I guess they'll have it. But the other case here is it's not just the people of California because she's going to be in the United States Senate and a lot of decisions get made there that affect all Americans. 
I just wonder if anybody would have standing outside the state of California to bring a lawsuit saying that Butler can't fill that Senate seat because she's not a resident. What, what, you just ride into town one day, register to vote, rent an apartment, and you're a resident of California? Is that what Californian, Californians want? I don't think it's what a majority of the American people want because it's not just. Excuse me, it's not right. All right, let's jump over uh, to final story here today. I want to get into this for just a minute before I have to run. Um, by the way, don't miss tomorrow's show uh, because I, I think you're going to really enjoy We're going to talk about a case of uh, a, a young lady who identified as a transgender. She identified as male. And because of a lot of the actions of a, of a school and a school board, she ended up running away from home, being uh, kidnapped into sex trafficking twice, and was prevented from being taken back to her parents by the courts. I mean, it's just a, it's one of the most heartbreaking stories that I've ever heard. Um, all right, here's, let's see. Well, I tell you, before we get into this, I'm, I'm going to move the Southern Poverty Law story to tomorrow, too, because I wanted to quickly go over a couple of things about Trump's trial as it relates to previous um, cases that have been brought in the, in the state of New York. In other words, what do those cases look like? Um, I, this is just a few of them. Now, there's 24 pages here of previous court cases for fraud. And, and this is, you know, the question is, are they all being treated alike? And this is coming from justsecurity.org. But I want you to listen. I, I'm going to go one, two, three, four, five. I'm just going to do six. There are dozens of these cases, but they're all in the same mold of these six cases that you're going to hear. All right, you had the people of the state of New York versus uh, Jose Aguilar Dubon, a.k.a. Sade Dubon and a.k.a. Alejandro Ortez. That was in October of last year, 2022. A Bronx business owner indicted for failing to report over a million dollars in income, avoiding paying $60,000 in taxes. So that was tax fraud. Legitimate case. People of the state of New York versus Scott Kirkland. Insurance broker indicted for allegedly creating and filing fraudulent certificates of liability insurance to further a scheme to defraud. Insurance fraud, in other words, nothing, it's nothing like that going. And there were victims. Now, the thing, there are victims in both of these cases. One of insurance fraud, and of course, the state of New York was a victim, or and a state or city of New York was a victim, and that they, in the tax case, because they were not able to collect the right amount of taxes that were due. Uh, the people of the state of New York versus James Garner. Mental health therapy aid indicted for allegedly defrauding over $35,000 in workers' compensation benefits. Again, victim being the state. The people of the state of New York versus Jose Palmer. He pled guilty to, uh, to petit, petty larceny for unemployment benefits fraud of over $3,000, having initially been indicted for grand larceny and falsifying business records in the first degree. The people of the state of New York versus Jason Hawley convicted of by a jury of falsifying business records in the first degree, but acquitted of the uh, predicate crime, which was, did it have anything to do with inflated business uh, valuations? No, it was insurance fraud. 
the people of the state of New York versus Christina Murray, married couple convicted of house fire insurance fraud, attempting to recover the cash value of various items of property that were ostensibly lost in a fire. They weren't lost in a fire. They were just trying to defraud the insurance company. People of the state of New York versus Barbara Freeland, convicted for falsely claiming on a food stamp application that a young adult lived with her in order to get more food stamps, defrauding the state, the city, the victim, would have, would have been the victim. The people of the state of New York versus Maria Ramirez, convicted for returning unpurchased items to a store in exchange for store credit, thus causing a false entry in a business record of an enterprise and using the store credit to purchase additional items um, in one day. Now, you know what all of those have in, in common? They all have victims attached to the fraud. You know, you know what they don't have what they don't have in they also have in common? None of them involve overvalue uh, giving a value to property that's exaggerated. And if you go through all 24 pages, and I did this morning, sitting here, I went through the 24 pages, looked at all the cases, and none of them, not one involves the overvaluation of property as a fraud. And all of them have victims. So here, if you look at the Wall Street Journal today, the, the, they are writing the editors in an opinion piece. Um, this, is, this is what they said. Uh, let's see here. Judge Ingeron acknowledged that this asset puffery, in other words, puffing up the value of the assets, doesn't seem to have created losses for the creditors. Quote, defendants correctly assert that the record is devoid of, of any evidence of default, breach, late payment, or any complaint of harm. In other words, no victims. The judge said, however, that legally speaking, this is completely irrelevant. You know what? That's going to be fleshed out when this thing goes to an appellate court. Because I, I just don't think that you can say that you can say that without a victim, where's the crime? In fact, you can't say the victim is the state of New York because they made a ton of money off of taxes because all these people made money. And when they made money, they paid taxes. And the taxes they paid went to the state of New York. The businesses involved all prospered. Trump's businesses prospered. That's the part that I honestly think they can't stand. And so it, th this is going to be interesting. I, I, I just, look, I, I, I think President Trump has done some things that has caused him to have more trouble than he would have if, if he had stayed out, particularly in the documents case, if he'd have just stayed out of it and done what the archives requested. But in this case, when there's no victims... And virtually everybody kind of adds to the ledger a little bit when they're talking about the value of property and, and doing business in New York. I just don't see it. All right. Look, I hope you have a great day. I'll see you in the morning at 730. We'll have plenty to talk about that we didn't get to today.